0: Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. Aye. Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk, Spark.
1: You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain?
0: We violate the treaty, Captain. Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise.
1: What are you scratching (laughs) at? Humans make illogical decisions.
0: Distract sequence completed. My
1: own,
0: Mrs. I'm
1: talking to Mrs. Spock, do you understand? Starfleet, do you read? This is the Enterprise. We are under attack.
0: Fire, Mr. Scott. Scott Gardner and
1: Chris Honeywell, the Two True Freaks, every month for a new episode of Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month you will get a classic episode of Star Trek the Original Series, a Star Trek comic, and who knows what else. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com, Libson spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes.
0: podcasting, The Final Frontier. This is the Hammer Podcast. It's 30-minute mission, to rehash geeky topics, to seek out new bastions of nerdiness, to timidly go where the more talented have gone before. Greetings and welcome to the Hammer Podcast, the official podcast of thehammerstrikes.com. My name is Gene Hendricks and I have a very special guest with me today. One of the men responsible for the show you're listening to right now with the Get Off Your Ass and Make a Podcast show, co founder of Two True Freaks, Mr. Scott, heck no, I won't tell you my middle name, Gardner. How you doing?
1: Why does everybody want to blame me for their podcasting habit? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Gee, I don't know, maybe because you put out two podcasts that basically <laughs> told me to do this, just like the dog told the guy to, uh, you know, shoot somebody, but we're not going there. <laughs>
1: well, thank you for inviting me. I, I'm, I'm happy to be here because this is a subject near and dear to my heart, so I appreciate the invite.
0: Yeah, this time out, uh, Scott and I are going to talk to you about one of the greatest movies of all time, and I'm not using hyperbole for that, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yes. Now, as people that listen to my show know from episode one—the only episode Scott's listened to so far—I oh, why'd you have to <laughs> why you have to call me out like that? Actually, if...
1: that—that's not true. I know I've—I've I've listened beyond that—that that first. I'm not caught up by any means, but I have listened beyond that first show. I'm—I'm I'm positive that I have. Don't don't at- quiz me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's all right. Uh, you can't quiz me on the shows of yours I've listened to because I probably don't remember. <laughs> Most of the stuff. Anyway, <laughs> this movie is, as I said in that show, responsible for kickstarting my geek gene. This is what brought me in, not only into Star Trek, but into heavily into comic books, Star Wars, all sci fi, fantasy, stuff like that. This is where it all started, was this movie. And it's weird because, again, I watched it this morning just to prep for this, and it doesn't matter how many times I've seen it. When that travel pod comes around, the music swells, and you get that first glimpse of the Enterprise, I get a lump in my throat. Yep. Because that was my first ever sight of the Starship Enterprise. (laughs) So, this is a very, very important movie to me, and if you are listening on the day that this episode releases, it will be exactly 35 years old. Wow. Scary.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Talk about feeling old. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding.
0: Well, th- the other day, I actually had... We were joking back and forth with my boss and everything, saying how he had a leather jacket on, he was dressed as Fonzie for Halloween, and one of my coworkers, you know, baby face guy, oh, you could be Richie, he didn't know who Richie Cunningham was. He's oh, never seen Happy Days. <laughs> I just... I walked away then. I, I couldn't talk to him anymore. Yeah,
1: don't things like that make you just feel ancient?
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs> now, anyway, uh, I'm sure that the listeners i know uh, you from Star Trek Monthly Monday and your connection to the original series. Mm-hmm. You were telling me you did not see this in the theater. How did you end up seeing it?
1: Well, I'll give you the, the uh, Reader's Digest condensed version as much as possible here. I watched Star Trek as a kid, although you know I wouldn't really call myself a fan or anything. I, I couldn't quote you, you know, rhyme and verse on any episode or anything. But I watched it, I was aware of it, I knew it was out there and stuff. And I didn't really become a Star Trek fan, a solid Star Trek fan, until... Uh, star trek to the wrath of khan was on hbo and that movie was kind of my gateway drug into star trek because it played on hbo and and you know if you had hbo back in the 80s you know then you know that they would just take a movie and just run it into the ground you know they just play it and play it and play it and play it and play it so it was on all the time and i just fell in love with it through it being on hbo all the time and one of the things about Star Trek Two that I've always thought was, was really cool is how it kind of just throws you right into the movie. You know, it doesn't give you a lot of setup. It kind of assumes that you know things, like that you know who Khan is and that you know you know, different aspects of the Star Trek universe. Well, I, I really didn't. Like I said, I, I watched it as a kid, but I, I wasn't like slavishly devoted to it or anything. It was just, it was another show that I watched, you know, right up there with all the other shows that were ever on TV. And so through that process of kind of falling in love with Star Trek II, I wanted to find other Star Trek. And of course, you have to remember the context here. We're, we're talking about, you know, very early 80s, uh videotapes were just becoming a thing the original series was not available on videotape at this particular time so what was out there for star trek really the only other thing that was out there for star trek was star trek the motion picture so at one point I went to Mike's Quick Stop in Carthage, New York, where you know, I lived at the time as a kid, and my best friend Chris Honeywell and I, we rented Star Trek the Motion Picture. Now Chris had seen the movie, and I remember him and another friend of mine both warning me basically about the movie. They're like, "Yeah, you know, you're not really going to like this." And my initial reaction to it was, eh, you know, it was it was really good, but it was kind of slow, and it didn't it didn't exactly light my world on fire, mm. which seems to be the you know the prevailing opinion of the motion picture now a lot of people will be much more harsh than that but most of the positive things i hear come down to essentially that that's eh, okay i don't hear a lot of people say oh, i love this movie that's one of the reasons i was really glad to be with you here today because i like to find other people that have a really positive opinion of the movie so where did it change it changed for me when in the uh the late 80s early 90s I was out of the service and I was working retail at a time when video sales were just becoming a thing. You know, people actually buying videotapes mm-hmm. as opposed to just renting them. And I worked for a number of different companies from Saturday Matinee to, um, to Media Play to Suncoast Motion Picture Company, all these different places that were doing video sales. And because of the nature of the places that I worked at, most of them were very strict on what you were allowed to actually play on the store's uh, monitors you know on their on their video system. Most of them insisted that what you played was kiddie Fair or g-rated movies. Well, Of the non-animated movies, there's not a lot of movies that are G-rated. There's only a few I can think of off the top of my head. Two of them that I put into heavy rotation were the original Planet of the Apes from 68 with Charlton Heston. Believe it or not, folks, that movie is rated G. Wow. star trek the motion picture which is also rated g and through that process of just constantly having that movie on you know the daily playlist or the weekly playlist or however you know the frequency was that we played it i fell in love with it through that process of just it it just became uh one of those movies that you know it would be on in the background and Through the music and the pacing of the film, I I just, I kind of discovered a a real passion for it through that process of kind of, I hate to say being forced, you know, to to pay attention to it, but that was kind of what it was, you know, through that process. Of discovering, you know, this is actually a really good movie that people just aren't giving it the time of day to discover what a good movie it really is, and so that was kind of the process for me. Um, I mean, there's a lot of other factors involved in why I fell in love with it, which, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm sure we'll get into those, you know, as the course of this conversation goes. But that was kind of my origin story of how I discovered uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture. To this day, uh, it's it's you know right there on my on my top list of movies that I wish. Would come back around theatrically, so I would actually get to see it on the big screen. Because uh, when it was out theatrically, I I don't even remember being aware of it, to be honest with you. So I I missed it. I did not see it in the theater.
0: Yeah, because I know they they show Wrath of Khan every now and again, right? You know, um, I think maybe they show two, three, and four in theaters yeah. like ev- every so often. But I I don't remember ever seeing the motion picture in a theater. That would with with that score. Oh man, that would be amazing.
1: When people do, you know, when I do hear people that are not a fan of the movie outright, when I do hear people say something favorable about it, it is generally in regards to the score, which the score alone is not going to convince a theater to put a movie back in, you know, up on the big screen, which is a shame. I I do really wish that that it would get placed, you know, somewhere where I could go see it. But unfortunately, the reputation that the film has garnered over the years just doesn't seem to be a particularly favorable one now i i do think that the reputation has gone up a notch in recent years and i'd like Mm. to think maybe i had something to do with that i i (laughs) won't i won't make that statement because i don't want to seem you know big-headed about it but i'd like to think maybe i contributed a little bit because every opportunity i have to to try to turn the 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 tide of opinion about the film then you know i I don't like to squander those opportunities i think Mm. there's a lot to love in the movie myself
0: oh there is there is and one of Like you mentioned, one of the complaints is the pacing, Mm -hmm. and uh, I've heard friends of mine, Star Trek fans, call it the slow motion picture.
1: I hear it called the motionless picture quite often, which yeah. annoys me greatly.
0: But having watched it as many times as I have, I look at different things. Like today, I was actually looking I was trying to find how many scenes had a red, yellow, and blue element somewhere in them. And you'd be amazed at how many there are. Hmm. Just It's just like when the, the travel pod's leaving the, the dock to go over to the Enterprise, on the top where you're looking down, there's red patch, a yellow patch, and a blue patch. And it's amazing, these little, little hints that they put in to, for the original series' colors, since the uniforms were not those shades. But one of the things with the pacing, and it goes against George Lucas's, you know, don't stop and smell the roses, just get going in it, is a lot of it sets... The tone of the movie. This is not a fast-paced action battle kind of movie, uh, especially like the Viger flyover. That is where most of the people say this needs to be cut, and they actually did cut a little bit of that in the director's edition. Yeah, but it's like the beginning of Star Wars. Where you have this little ship of the Enterprise, and this humongous ship that V'ger's in. And the amount of time it takes them to just go over the ship, in your mind you're thinking, this sucker is huge, how are they going to do anything to this? And if it was just this quick little thing, you wouldn't have that sense of dread. But it keeps building and building, and even the characters are sitting there looking shocked at how humongous this other ship is. They've never dealt with anything like this before. And it's... Robert Wise knew what he was doing. Okay? <laughs> he knew how to build the tension.
1: Uh-huh. But,
0: and, but once they get there and they start doing stuff, then, okay, the probe comes on board. Ilia gets snatched. The new Aylea uh, shows up. Spock goes for a spacewalk. Once they get there, things start happening. But it's this... Slow buildup to it that makes you apprehensive that you don't think they're going to be able to do it.
1: Well, I think that slow buildup comes from two very distinct factors. For one, even though this movie came out post Star Wars, you have to remember the mentality and the way that films, particularly science fiction films, were made pre Star Wars. Probably uh, the biggest one that you can point to would be 2001, A Space Odyssey. I I think, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I think Star Trek The Motion Picture owes more to 2001 than it does to Star Wars, especially in the pacing. Mm -hmm. I I think a lot of people were expecting at least at the time when when Star Trek The Motion Picture came out, that it was competing somehow with Star Wars. But what I really think was going on was that it was competing with 2001. And that being the case, releasing that sort of a movie into a post-Star Wars world, I, I think that was probably its its biggest... Detractor, You know, the thing that hurt it the most is that people just looked at it and said, you know what, I know you're a brand spanking new movie, but you're kind of a dinosaur. And I think that that has stuck with it all these years. The other thing that I think was a, a major contributor, uh, you mentioned Robert Wise, the director. It's very funny that, uh, I hope you don't mind my letting the, the listeners peek behind the curtain a little bit, but as we record this, it's November 1st. Last night was Halloween. Well, last night, I actually sat and watched... Again, uh, The Haunting from 1963, which is uh, Robert Wise's uh, adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House, you know, the the film that he did in 63. Now, I enjoy that movie, but as my wife and I were both saying repeatedly while we were watching it, by today's movie-going sensibilities, that is one plodding slow movie. (laughs) It's good and it's suspenseful, but if you go into it with a modern sensibility of particularly say horror films where you're expecting blood and guts and horror and fast-paced you know quick cuts and all this special effects stuff then you're gonna walk away sorely disappointed because that's not what that movie is it is a suspenseful it's more of a it's not what you see it's what you don't see and to a large degree, I think Star Trek The Motion Picture is kind of made on that same mentality. You know, not that there's not beautiful special effects and incredible sets and everything, but it's more, Wise is this taking his time to tell the story. He, he's not feeling a sense of being rushed, so... You know, the movie takes, what is it, two and a half to three hours, something like that. It's a very long movie.
0: The original theatrical release was two hours and ten minutes.
1: Oh, I always thought it was more than that.
0: No, no, that's the one I watched today, and it... Hmm. If you include the overture, which I sorely miss in movies is the right. overture, I would add like another five minutes maybe. But yeah, it, it feels a little longer than it actually is just because of the uh, the grandeur of it. Well, on that subject,
1: I'm very curious of the... Um, I think there's been three distinct cuts of the movie now, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe there's more. Maybe there's another one I'm forgetting. But the three I can think of are, of course, the original theatrical version. And then there was the one that came out on videotape after a time called special. Longer edition, right? It had like five more minutes or something. I think it was more. I think was I want to say it was like twelve, or it was double digits. I want to say it okay. was either twelve or seventeen. I think something mm-hmm. like that. I wish I had the videotape in front of me. And then uh, the one that came out of that's—I well, pro- was going to say a couple years ago. It's probably closer to ten years ago. Now it was called the uh, the director's cut edition, right? Uh, of those three, I'm just curious, what's your personal favorite one?
0: Well, the one that I grew up with was the VHS copy. And that is still my preferred version.
1: So is that the special longer version? Yes. Okay, yeah. yeah.
0: That's that's the one, because we were one of those people that actually bought it on VHS right. in, in the early 80s. And that's that's where I first saw it, was at home. But that's the one I, I prefer, because it's still got the original special effects. Now, I, I have nothing bad to say about the revised effects they did in the director's cut. They add a lot, but I like the mystery of the unfinished version special effects. But there's just some scenes that are in that that I like to have in the movie like the the scene where kirk goes down to the transporter room and mccoy will not get on the transporter pad in the original release the one i watched today kirk says okay i'll go get him beam up then mccoy beams up whereas in the extended right. version right. you have him kirk asking you know yeoman what's going on down what there? what was the problem
1: down there yeah, yeah it's
0: something about let us let it scramble our molecules and then he has a joke with Rand and then they beam McCoy up. I like that scene being in the movie right. because it adds it adds a little more to McCoy's character. Because, you know, he used to beam all the time on the show, but since he's retired, he doesn't want to deal with it. And it it just adds a little bit more to, and also to the Kirk Rand relationship. Because the last time you see her, before that in the movie, two people just died on the transporter pad. So now it's a little scene to say, oh, you know, she is okay, you know, don't worry about her. And correct me if I'm wrong. Was it on one of your Star Trek Monthly Monday shows that you were talking about the novelization of the movie?
1: Yeah, I, I really need to reread it. I have been planning for some time to reread it because I actually dug out and, and set them on my bookshelf in, in the actual chronological order. There's um, a series of novels that were called the Lost Years. Mm. This this was at a time when the publisher, who I'm blanking on at the Pocket Books, maybe. I think so. You know they were putting out their Star Trek novels and they were all numbered and they put out one called The Lost Years and then over the course of the next several years they had I think it was three more books I think that were part of that Lost Years saga but what was funny is that they were just part of the regular numbering that Pocket was putting out so you kind of had to cipher that out you know what mm-hmm. I mean that they were actually part of this other series but you put those as you know the lead ups and then the motion picture as the ending novel it kind of tells the the gap between the end of the five year mission and the motion picture and I have been meaning and meaning and meaning to <laughs> sit down and, and do that reread and I just hadn't got to it yet but uh, while my memory of of the novel are a little vague. I I do remember really enjoying the novel when I was a kid because it gives you some extra insights and there's extra things in the novel that didn't make it into the picture, you know, into the movie. And one of the things that I always remember that has stuck with me all these years was that the technology of Star Trek the motion picture, and some of this is in the film as well, but the technology of the motion picture, especially in the novel, was far in advance of what we would see both in subsequent Star Trek movies with Kirk and crew, but also even going into, like, Next Gen. Mm -hmm. There were some things that they had in the motion picture that they never have again. And the one thing from the novels that I, I always remember was that Kirk had some sort of subcutaneous device. It was like an implant that would allow him to receive... I'm not even sure how to describe it because my impression as a kid was that it was some form of telepathy. But now that I think about it, I I think it was more like they were just beaming the images right into his brain. Oh. But it was basically allowing him to receive like news messages into his mind. So that's how he initially becomes aware of... Something to do with the plot. It's either aware, and that's how he becomes aware of V'ger, or it's how he becomes aware of the three Klingon vessels that are destroyed, it, or maybe it's the destruction of Epsilon 9. I forget, but something from the beginning of the movie, that's how he's made aware of it, as they beam it right to him through this huh. subcutaneous thing. And I never forgot that. I always thought that that was really, really cool. And of course, you know, never mentioned again, never played with again <laughs> in Star Trek. You know, the idea that they would have these subcutaneous transponders in them, Jesus, that would solve a lot of problems that come up uh, especially on next gen where people are stranded on a planet Mm -hmm. or they can't find them or they can't beam them back or whatever if they actually had these little implants how handy would that be
0: you You know know, that's probably why they dropped it because uh, oh crap now we can't do all these kinds of shows
1: Right. Well, you know, also, I, I just thought of this, is that, you know, we're, we're always talking about how Star Trek either predicted things to come or set the trend for things that people wanted to invent. Mm-hmm. That idea right there, whether it was Gene Roddenberry's a- idea or um, or Alan Dean Foster's who wrote the novel, you know, that kind of presupposes uh, chipping, putting the microchip, like, in your dog or something, you know? Right, yeah. uh, I guess people are actually chipping their kids these days, which just seems a little sketchy to me, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know? But that yeah. idea that Kirk was chipped. He had this chip in him where they could, you know, for one, they could keep tabs on him, I guess, but they could also communicate with him when they needed to. Hmm. I just always thought that was an interesting idea. And you know, there were other things in there, too. It's a little more firmly established, the identity of the woman that perishes in the transporter accident. According to the novel, that was Kirk's ex-wife.
0: Yeah, and if you watch Shatner's performance in that uh, scene, you can tell it's not just the pain of losing two crewmen. Mm-hmm. There's more there because he can barely speak after they're told that uh, the starbase gets him back that they died instantly. He can he's just choked up, and that's not because he lost a Vulcan science officer. That's right. because that woman meant more to him than just somebody else.
1: I really appreciate you saying that because you know I I don't want to harp too much on this idea that that the movie is beset upon by critics but it is you know there's no denying that that you and i are in the vast minority liking this movie as we do and one of the things that pains me continually that i hear about the movie beyond the fact that it's slow and it's plotting and not a lot happens and blah 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 I even hear the performances attacked. I even hear the story attacked that, you know, it just doesn't feel like Star Trek. You know, they're not all jokey like on the show. Well, they're not jokey because it's a very serious situation, but I would argue with anybody that says it doesn't feel like the television show because I find that I think it feels a lot like the show, but I think that... Shatner really delivers one of his better Kirk performances in this particular movie because he's not jokey hammy Shatner. He's serious. He's coming back off of a long time out of a seat and kind of having to re-earn the privilege of sitting in that center seat. And I like that. And I think that Shatner's performance in this movie, in a lot of instances, is really, really sharp. And that's one of the things that uh, I've picked up on right from the beginning and I'm glad to hear somebody else did too is that scene uh, where the the two are lost in the transporter accident. I've always liked that where Kirk and this goes to Shatner's acting, I think, you know, because a lot of people, you know, there's been such this legend built up of taking pot shots at Shatner's acting that I think people forget that. The guy is a great actor when he, oh, yeah. you know, when he's putting himself to it. That, I think, is a really good scene because on the one hand, as you say, you see the pain in him. You see the, the hurt in everything he's feeling, but at the same rate, he can't allow himself to be human. He's got to be the captain, and so we see it, but it's not fully, you know, it's not blatant, and I like that. It's a very subtle performance because that's how a great, captain would have to play it you know they would have to you know i I can't let my personal feelings overwhelm me i have to be strong because i'm the captain and i i love that in that moment and there's a couple other moments with kirk like that throughout the movie too i I have long said that uh, of you know one of the big reasons i like this movie so much is that i don't think shatner ever looked better than Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Right. Some of the other actors, some of them look really good. Some of them would look better in, you know, either prior projects or future projects. But Shatner, Kirk, who to me, that's what Star Trek is all about. You know, at the end of the day, it's it's Kirk's story. You know, mm-hmm. to me. But Kirk. I don't think, ever had a finer moment than uh, than Star Trek The Motion Picture. He still looks pretty good in Star Trek II, but part of the thing with that movie was him coming to face with the fact of getting old and his mortality and all, and he kind of looks that way. Whereas in this movie, you know, damn if he doesn't look like he's right in his prime, man, and I, I like that. You know, he's fit, he's trim, he's back. You know, he's he's rested and tanned, and Kirk is back, and I like that. I, I think that really plays to the strength of the movie.
0: Oh, it does, and this is the only, I think, I think think I'm stealing from you here, but this is the only movie of all the, the Star Trek movies that's actually a science fiction story. Mm-hmm. It's not action, it's not fighting, it's not weird displaced time travel, it's actually science fiction. And the Enterprise fires once, and that's to destroy an asteroid. Yep. No other shots are fired except for three by the Klingons. That's it. You know, mm-hmm. this this was a thinking man story. This is Kirk, and the, the briefing actually says, we have to hope that there's an intelligence at the center of the cloud that reasons the way we do. He's not going in guns blazing. He's going in trying to talk this thing down, which is right out of the series. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, Kirk... When he he fought some sometimes, but a lot of times it was trying to talk his way out of it. Right. Whether it's you know Kirk logic destroying a computer or just trying to convince people, hey, you know you don't want to do this, or just you know we'll just go, leave us alone. But no, oh, well you're not leaving us alone. Fine, then we'll shoot you. But it's it's science fiction. It is trying to overcome the obstacle with reasoning and that's one of the things that star trek is best for is the future is bright and guess what we can outthink anything
1: (laughs) well you know after the the initial um episode that we did on two true freaks discussing this film uh believe me i have had no end of people asking me you know "Are, are you serious about that that one's really your favorite and and my having to justify why Mm. it is. So I've given this subject a lot of thought. (laughs) And it basically, I I come down to two things, is that by saying favorite, I I think people want to read more into that statement than is really there. By saying favorite, I am not saying, I think it's the best one. I Mm. think it's the most action-packed. I think it's this, I think it's that. I'm just saying for me personally, this is the one that speaks to me the best. And the two major reasons I've been able to narrow it down to for this is uh, as you say it's the one that's purest science fiction um, because if you take a look at, at the other and I'm just going to narrow it to the Kirk movies but you know you take a look at the other Kirk movies two is Kirk in Moby Dick essentially mm-hmm. three is you know it's an adventure tale it's, it's about family it's about him going you know to save his friend four is you know let's go save the whales and five I'm not sure what the hell five's all about <laughs> and then six is you know it's a political allegory you know us and the Russians so none of them as good or you know whatever your opinion are of the other movies none of them are pure science fiction along that same line None of the other ones, and again, I'm not slagging any of them, but none of the other ones are pure Roddenberry Mm. Star Trek. And what I mean by that was that Gene Roddenberry thought the whole thing up. And he had a very definite idea in his mind of what Star Trek was and what it should be. That idea unfortunately didn't necessarily always translate into the most exciting television but this was his opportunity and i think this this and possibly the pilot or maybe even the whole first season for next gen were really the only two times that gene roddenberry was able to to really express the idea he had for star trek and i think that's why this movie and the first season of next gen feel like kissing cousins because they are because he had the strongest influence during that time now next gen would quickly change In order to you know appease audiences and be a little more mass market appeal and and just be a little more exciting television frankly and so would you know the the star trek feature films with kirk would also change and mutate because unfortunately roddenberry's vision what he wanted star trek to be doesn't it just and it pains me to say it but it is true it just doesn't necessarily appeal to a mass market it doesn't make for blockbuster numbers but That's one of the things I like about this movie is it's... I'm sure they wanted it to do gangbuster numbers, but at the end of the day, it's not trying to be Star Wars. It's not trying to be this huge blockbuster film. It's just trying to tell a good, intelligent science fiction story that doesn't necessarily involve shooting and bad guys and and scary aliens. It's more about this cerebral idea of who are we and where are we going. and, And I like that. I think that is kind of the the core idea for Star Trek in a lot of ways. I mean, I love the action ones too, but every once in a while I want a good th- episode that makes me think about something. Right. This is unfortunately this is the only one we got of the Star Trek films and you know, the way the franchise is looking these days it might be the only one we ever get. So <laughs> in that regard it holds a very special distinction And I like that. To me, it makes the movie feel that much more special because there's no, not another one in the entire series quite like it. And I like that. Some people would say, "Oh, thank God," but me, I just say, "Well, you know, I I like that. I like its its special place in the in the franchise."
0: Yeah. Well, it was really the series brought to the big screen. You know, it it was like a large episode of Star Trek you know it wasn't trying to be a blockbuster movie it was trying to be what it was based on and that that comes from being you know morphing from Star Trek phase two coming in and that's where this stuff comes from and that's also why Next Gen feels so close to it because same source material right right you know we had uh, Decker and Ilya go become Riker and Troy. Although Ilya is a little more useful, but we won't go, <laughs> go there. <laughs> We're trying to celebrate the movie, not tear down other things. But it's also. Uh, it- People say they're not jokey or anything. They really weren't all that jokey in some of the episodes of the TV show. I mean, I defy you to find one light-hearted moment in. Um, now I'm blanking on the damn name. What happens in it? Uh, the one with uh, Mark Leonard as the Romulan commander.
1: Oh, uh, Balance of Terror. Yeah. Balance of Terror. Yeah. Yeah. That
0: that is a super serious
1: mm-hmm.
0: episode. This is a super serious movie.
1: There are... but it's not without its humor, though. Oh, I it mean, does uh, have humor. I mean, yeah, but...
0: it's got the you know. Now that we've got them right where they want us, in line.
1: Right. I, I think that's the thing with it is that it. Uh... You know it, a lot of it is subtle a lot of the deliveries whether comedic or serious or whatever a lot of it is very subtle and it's as i say it's those subsequent rewatches that that pointed these things out to me where i was like okay i get that now that okay that's really cool or that's really funny or whatever yeah. sometimes it would take you know multiple viewings to kind of catch those things
0: yeah well case in point i just noticed today when kirk is beaming to the space dock Scotty's standing there and the the one chief is doing operating the transporter controls. Scotty's standing there giving her a sidelong look, like, You doing that right? <laughs> I never noticed that until today. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's just it there's such pieces of things like that in the sets, in hell, the uh just having that huge amount of crewmen in the rec deck for the briefing. Mm -hmm. You know, you finally get the idea. Yeah, there are 400 guys up there.
1: Well, not just that, but I mean, you know, one of the things that that I think even the harshest critic should hopefully at least appreciate about the movie is that Star Trek would never look this way again. It would Mm -hmm. never look this good again. Because this was the one time when it got the budget. You know, when it got the budget to go, okay, you do what you need to do to make this look like the 23rd century. Entry, and they did, so we got you know we got an exterior shot on Earth. We got all kinds of different areas of the ship. The Enterprise looked for the first and only time on screen like what it was supposed to be—a city in space that you could live and work and operate on. And we would never see that again in Star Trek. Everything that we would get after this was very much submarine in space, and you would see the bridge and you'd see a couple of areas, and that would be it. But here, you know, you got the huge. And spacious wreck uh, deck. You got, you know, the uh, uh, you know when Kirk comes in in the shuttle pad and he looks down into you know where they're loading the supplies. And mm-hmm. I, I love stuff like that. You know, it's funny that I'm raving about that because that's one of the things that that makes my co-host Chris, you know, crazy about uh, you know some of the other Star Trek films was that people were going just to see new areas of the ship and and kind of disregarding what the movie was actually <laughs> about. That I'm not I'm not saying I focus on those things, but that is one of the strengths of the movie, I think, was that they were really able to, to lavish the money on it to to make it feel. I mean, this one feels the most. I hate to use the word realistic because it's not realistic, but you know what I mean. It, it feels the most believable in a lot of ways because the the world is there.
0: Right. You see behind the scenes. You see. Yeah. This is, when they're have their downtime, they go to the rec deck and do this. Mm-hmm. When they're off duty on Earth, apparently they have a huge toga party because there's a bunch of people right. who look like they just walked off, off a Roman set. But still, you you don't see everybody in the Starfleet uniform all the time and even the uniforms there are a huge variety of uniforms in this movie from the super cool that so cool that my wife actually commented that's a really sharp uniform kirk's admiral uniform yeah to you know the short sleeve option to sulu wearing like a wraparound thing you know all these variety of uniforms again you're not going to see that until like encounter at farpoint and then they got rid of those right right In next gen. So it's, you just get more of a, like you said, a believable feel that this isn't just a set. Mm -hmm. This is part of a world. Right. right? And that's that's where a lot of the money went, you know, was the special effects and costuming and everything. And it it definitely shows. And I'm, I for one am happy about that because that's, it's one of those things where, again, my wife had a question while we were watching it. I said, okay, hold on. I went and got my Mr. Scott's guide and said, ah, that page. Read that. And I said, oh, okay. That's my book from when Star Trek IV came out. They put out a new edition of that, and that was a birthday present that year for me. Still have it. (laughs) Still the same copy. And believe it or not, it's not falling apart. (laughs) Considering how many times I've read the damn thing, it's amazing. But that's one. Of the th- this movie is one of the reasons that I love books like that because I want to see how does this operate. We get a glimpse of Kirk's quarters in the movie. What does the rest of it look like? This is the way my brain works. Is I want to know how everything hooks together, how it works. Right. And this movie gives me a lot of that. It gives me oh, on the other end of the shuttle bay, there's this cargo area. That's wonderful. And it took me the longest time to realize this. In the Turbo Lift, when Kirk goes in, my first thought is like, oh, this is a new Turbo Lift, we'll look at that map. What well, I didn't realize, because I hadn't seen the original series yet, is he's looking for a handle. Right, yeah. <laughs> more subtle acting you know it's just he he doesn't have to do anything he just runs his hand around just odd look on his face and just says bridge if you don't know it like i didn't know it it's just oh okay he's just looking around but right yeah he's he's wondering where do i grab (laughs) which is a joke they revisit in ds9 when they go back in time for the triple episode oh that's right and o'brien and bashir are standing there like why isn't it moving and the other crewman comes in, and turns the handle. Right. Because they're not used to that. They're used to just walking in and it goes, and not to, they don't have to turn it on.
1: <laughs> That's a good catch. I hadn't thought of that, but you're absolutely right.
0: Now, one of the things that I know you love, and I love, is Jerry Goldsmith's score to this movie. Yes. This this changed Star Trek music forever because they reworked the main title into the music for the main title of Next Gen. Right. One of, That's one of the things that this movie directly impacted on Next Gen. But that music sets the mood so well. Oh, yeah. It, it You buy into everything when you're seeing that. Aaliyah's theme, the main title, the Klingon music, which was used forever after that for Klingons. Mm-hmm. It's terrific. It's one of the first music uh, movie score albums I ever bought was this movie this movie.
1: I think this is easily one of the greatest uh, scores ever ever composed. Uh, it's just a phenomenal score. You know, regardless of what you may think of the movie, the, the score is, you know, it's not only one of the greatest, but I mean... W- Goldsmith I mean did so many incredible scores during his career and even he said that this was one of his best and I, I completely agree one of the things I always liked with especially with his science fiction films is that he would always experiment with sound he was always playing around with sound and what could he use to get unique sounds in his scores and he was using uh, you know several different uh, experimental things with this score that really work so you've got that I'm trying to remember what the device was was called and I'm drawing a blank, but you know, you get a lot of that where it would just go wow or, you know, in the right. background. But he would use that as kind of the voice of V'ger in the score, and it mm-hmm. just works. It works so well. But the the score is just masterfully done. It's uh very similar to Star Wars in the effect that the music helps tell the story by the way that the music is playing in the different scenes Mm -hmm. while there's not necessarily distinct themes for individual characters there are still distinct themes that carry on throughout so the enterprise kind of has its own theme and voyager definitely has its own theme and then beyond that it's just the way the music uh plays kind of directs you know, and it mirrors what is happening on the screen. And I like that. It works so well. And there's some really solid moments uh, in the score. I've always been particularly fond of uh, the moment where we have that great. And it's so nice that these movies are now available in widescreen so you can really appreciate how beautifully the movie is shot. But if you watch this in widescreen, there's a great shot of a crewman all alone on the deck where the EVA suits are. Right. And. There's just this great, you know, from a distance wide shot of that crewman all by himself. And Spock sneaks up behind him and gives him the neck pinch so that he can take an EVA suit. And the score in that moment is so quiet and so i'm not sure how to describe it. it's just kind of tinkly it's very reminiscent without sounding anything like it it's very reminiscent of when ben kenobi goes to deactivate the tractor beam in star wars it evokes the same kind of feeling of sneaking around and shh, let's be quiet and i right. love that it works so well in there and there's a lot of little moments like that and then there's other moments that are just uh they almost feel like a piece of classical music uh, I love the moment when Spock's uh, Spock shuttle approaches the Enterprise and performs that little turnaround maneuver so that it can dock. The music and the, and the feeling in that moment is very 2001 A Space Odyssey. And it's moments like that, when I hear other people criticize those moments as dragging the film down, I'm like, you're completely missing what's happening here. This is actually beautiful. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I love those are the moments that I really like.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things that it's showing you that yeah, these may be big clunky machines, but they have a grace about them.
1: Exactly, yes. Yeah. And
0: and it's actually treating it like it's in zero gravity because you could not do a flip like that within, you know, range of any kind of planet because you would have to fire thrusters to get away from that gravity. No, it's just it's basically picking a point within itself and completely flipping around. Right. around that point while still moving towards the enterprise
1: right it's just beautiful well i'm a, i'm a very big fan of early space flight you know, Mercury mm. through Apollo. And you have to remember what was happening in the real world behind the scenes around the time that this movie came out. You know, not long uh, before this film, we had seen the official announcement of the space shuttles. And because of overwhelming fan demand, frankly, they decided to name the very first space shuttle The Enterprise. Mm. Now it never flew, it was just a mock up, but that was the first one. So Star Trek fandom was was on the upswing again, you know, when this movie was coming out. You know, there'd kind of been a resurgence of, of interest in Star Trek. And a lot of these guys, you know, the actors, particularly Nichelle Nichols, were very closely tied with, with NASA and the real space programs. And Gene Roddenberry himself wanted that authentic feel of being You know, like, Star Trek The Motion Picture feeling like an outgrowth of where we were as a people and as a nation with our own space program of of the 70s. And... That's another thing that this movie really represents well. It's really the last time it was really represented in Star Trek, in in my opinion, of this feeling like a natural progression of the real space program as it existed at that time. Especially the moment where uh, Decker takes Aylea to the wreck deck mm-hmm. and he shows her... Uh, you know, the display, you know, these vessels were all named Enterprise and we have, a, you know, an old uh, sailing ship right up to a space shuttle. And, uh, and I love that. I, you know, I like that feel that, you know, you could sit down and watch something like, you know, like Apollo 13 and then watch Star Trek, the motion picture. And it doesn't feel jarring. It doesn't feel like, well, these two don't match up. They feel like you know, one is an outgrowth of the other. I like that. I think that's really cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's I I don't have any more words. I keep wanting to say it's beautiful, it's amazing, you know, it's glorious, but I, I don't want to keep using <laughs> the same words over and over again. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it, this movie is important in many ways. I mean, it's not only did it start the resurgence of people actually filming Star Trek because if it wasn't for the motion picture no matter what people think of it you wouldn't have next gen ds9 voyager or enterprise they all came directly out of this movie there were other original cast movies and everything but this is the one that I always I always felt I want to see the 5 year missions after this because supposedly in the lore and everything they went on another 5 year mission with the the motion picture enterprise right you know but I I want to see those Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's not never going to happen.
1: There was an attempt, um, at least in the comic books, mm. uh, there was a series, called, I think it was called The Unknown Voyage, or Untold, I think it was Untold Voyages. Untold Voyages. It Untold was all, Voyages. It, yeah,
0: but it was only like a four-issue miniseries or something.
1: I think, I could be wrong, maybe I'm rewriting history here, but I think originally that was intended to be an ongoing, I do believe. But then, you know, I, I believe it was just through low sales and what that uh, that it didn't work out. You know, um, it occurs to me that uh, someone put me in contact with the writer of that series, and we were supposed to have him on Star Trek Monthly Monday at some point. I need to, I need to get <laughs> back on that and, and make that actually happen because I'd love to pick his brain about that. But uh, I remember when that came out, and I bought the first issue, and I was, sadly, I was very underwhelmed by it at the time. So I never yeah. picked up another issue. But then, not long ago, someone sent me the last issue of the series. In the last issue of that series, not only is it a, a great story, it is the Star Trek story I had been wanting to read for many years, which was... It told the story essentially of why in the world after everything that Kirk goes through in this movie in Star Trek the motion picture to regain the captaincy of the Enterprise why in the world would he give it up again as we see that he has done uh, when we pick up with him in Star Trek 2 and the last issue of that series actually tells that story and it was really good I, I enjoyed it very much I'd encourage anybody that's all you know, likewise interested in that mystery to, uh, to seek that out because it's, it's very very good but I'm with you I always wanted to to see more uh, stories from right when the when the Enterprise flies off at the end of this movie, give me more of that. You know, tell right. me, okay, what's what happens next? And uh, there there have been some stories, um, but none of them stand out in my mind as being particularly memorable. There was one a couple years ago called uh, Ex Machina that was okay. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to like it more than I did because the author was so enthusiastic about the motion picture. He spends the entire preface of the book raving about you know how this is his favorite movie and everything. but then unfortunately the book wasn't very good so
0: (laughs) (laughs) well the best of intentions don't always lead to good results unfortunately yeah this is true Uh, otherwise my some of my stuff would have come out better but that's just (laughs) the way it is (laughs) well we could probably go on for hours yes we could but (laughs) I don't want to burden the listeners too much (laughs) allow me to wrap up for everyone listening by saying this whether you've seen this movie recently or not, I would encourage you, on the 35th anniversary of it, give it another watch. Just sit back, enjoy it, look at it from a science fiction perspective. Not in comparison to any other original cast movies, just as a huge episode of the TV show. And I promise you, your opinion will go up. That's not too big of a promise, is it? No, nah.
1: I want to. I want to tag something onto that as well. All um, right. If you actually do that, if you do what Gene is asking, I encourage people do the same thing. Absolutely, do that. Watch it. Uh, whether you you love the movie and you've seen it a million times, or whether you're like, ah, oh, that movie sucks, you know, dig it out and and rewatch it again on that on the anniversary as close to the anniversary as you can. When you do, though, here's what I'd like you to do: tag us on Facebook. Let us know. Hey, I'm watching this again because Gene and Scott said to watch it, so I'm watching it, and I'm just. I want to see you know how many people do that. I think that'd be fun,
0: yeah, that would be that would be great. see see what the numbers come in. Of mm-hmm. course, I only have about five listeners, so <laughs>
1: we'll turn that around.
0: yeah, well, that's that's why I'm on the Two True Freaks internet radio network. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate that. Uh, You've definitely raised the level of this show, at least the awareness of the show. And uh, how about you tell everyone where they can find you?
1: You can find me and everything that I do on the Internet at uh, www.2truefreaks.com. We have a regular uh, Star Wars show, uh, very first Monday of the month. We do a Star Trek show, actually a couple of them. Uh, second Monday of the month Uh, third Monday of the month is comics and last Monday of the month is a brand new show we've just started up called Earning My Ears that is all about Walt Disney World
0: and they're all wonderful shows I can tell you that because I have listened to every single one of them
1: (laughs) oh and don't let me forget uh, Back to the Bins as well Back to the Bins comes out every Saturday and is a a great show just about uh, loving old comic books
0: which in my opinion are the best kind (laughs) All right, well, thank you again, Scott, and I'll see you next time, everybody. The Hammer Podcast is a production of thehammerstrikes.com. Questions and comments can be emailed to gene at thehammerstrikes.com. Look for The Hammer Strikes on Facebook and Google+. Part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network.